0: Well, Lord, you are indeed a great king, a great king who is indeed worthy of all praise, of all worship, and of the utmost and highest obedience. And so, Lord, I pray that through the book of Malachi that we will see your greatness, that we will fear your judgments that we will esteem you rightly for who you are. I pray that the, that the book of Malachi would have its work on our hearts, that your spirits through the prophet would have a work in our heart, that we would view you rightly, that we would think rightly of ourselves. I pray that we would be brought low due to our sin, that we would see the helplessness of mankind in our sin, and that we would look. For the coming Lord, that we would look for the Lord who was going to come and make all things right. And so we pray that the book of Malachi would have this work on us. I pray that you would bless my mouth, bless my mind, bless your people's ears and their minds, and may your spirit help us all in this work and in this worship of reading your scriptures and honoring you as we look at what you have to say to your church. So bless our time, Lord. I ask your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The book of Malachi. The book of Malachi caught my attention just a few months ago when, when Cassie had the opportunity to, to lead the children and, and teach the children in the kids' Sunday school and. The book that they were on was the book of Malachi, Check, check. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. What would we do without Brother Robert? I would have to preach without a mic. So, as I was saying, yeah, I got introduced to this book when, when me and Cassie were looking at it, and quickly I recognized um, something about the book of Malachi. I realized that this book, just the way it's laid out, is just a classic um, law gospel presentation It's a classic law gospel presentation. It's just a model of the way the Puritans, the way the Reformers presented the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we're all familiar with, you know, law gospel presentations of the gospel, um, what we're first going to see in the book of Malachi is law. The first thing we're going to see is law. We're going to see a lot of it. And what we're going to see in Malachi is specifically law-breaking we're going to see a lot of law breaking. We find God first rebuking his people. We find him calling them into account for the many ways in which they have broken the covenant that God has made with them. But the good news is that God does not simply leave his people in their sin, in their guilt, but in the very midst of his rebuking them, he promises that the Lord himself will come to them. And will restore the worship of the people and will enable them to present their offerings in righteousness. And so that's just a very brief intro into the layout of this book. And so I want us to dive right in. Dive right into verse 1. And in Malachi chapter 1 verse 1, we're going to begin what, Lord willing, will be a two-week study of this book, a, a survey of sorts. Uh, Malachi's short; it's only four chapters, um, but we only have two sermons to cover those four chapters. So, be ready to move quickly through the text. And by the time we're done, my my prayer is that we will really have a grasp on what um, the message was that God gave to His people Israel. Um, this is the last message; this is the last word they get before the coming Christ. So, I I think it's a special word and. I just want us to appreciate it and just um, just put ourselves in the, in, the, in the seat and in the skin of the people of Israel as this is the last word that they're going to hear before a long time of silence before the coming of Christ. So, so this is it, the book of Malachi. So let me read Malachi chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll get started. Um, it says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel... Through Malachi. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. And so, here in the very first bo- uh, verse of the book, we're presented both the authors and the audience. And I say authors, plural, intentionally, because here in the first verse, we're given the primary and the secondary authors of the book. It says it's the word of the Lord. And so the primary author is, of course, the Lord. And the Lord um, needs no introduction to us. But we might be a little more interested in who is the secondary author. Who is this Malachi? And I hate to build it up like that because, unfortunately, we have literally no information about this man. No other prophets, no other biblical writers mention anything about him. Uh, we don't have any personal information given about Malachi, even in the very, v- in the very book here that, that um, is given his name. We're not given any uh, biographical information whatsoever about the man Malachi, but as it is with every book of the Bible, the most important author is the primary author, the Lord, and so because the Lord is the primary author, uh, we can be content with the truthfulness of the words spoken through the secondary author. Now, as far as the audience of the letter is concerned, Malachi addresses his writing to Israel. To Israel. And because this is the last letter of the Old Testament, we're looking at a dating in the mid-5th century BC. Most scholars are saying it's from 420 to 450 BC, something around that time. But in the mid-5th century BC, uh, what we find in Israel is that the people have just recently been miraculously delivered from their Babylonian captivity. That would have just recently happened. God, um, through several uh, miraculous workings in, in, in providence, he, he brings the people home back to Israel. He even um, works it out so that they um, can have the temple rebuilt. This is post-Nehemiah, so the, 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 the wall to the city is rebuilt. All of these things God has just done for his people Israel at the time of this writing. And you would think, you, you might guess that if this had just happened for the people of Israel, that as we come to the book of Malachi, a book written right after God did all that gracious work for them, you might think we would find the people enraptured in worship enraptured in thanksgiving and and, in worship to god for his mercy and grace but as is so true with israel the typological man we find them instead straying away from god now as i said before the format that the outline for the book of malachi is in a law gospel arrangement and as we're going to see god's going to bring forth many rebukes to the people of Israel in this book. And so let's look at the first rebuke. The first rebuke is a rebuke for forgetfulness. Forgetfulness. Malachi chapter 1 verse 2 says this, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, this is Israel now speaking, how have you loved us? God says, I have loved you, but Israel says, how have you loved us? Now, can you imagine the slap in the face that a question like this would be to God? This people, especially the descendants of Israel, actually having the audacity to think in their hearts to God, God, how have you loved us? Could not God have recalled miracle after miracle after miracle Uh, of ways in which he has loved them. But what does God do? Because he doesn't recall for them uh, all of the miraculous. He doesn't recall to them all of the material blessings that he's given to them over their history. Instead, God reminds them of a more amazing blessing, and that is the blessing of unconditional election. Because God replies to this, this this rhetorical question of how have you loved us by saying this, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. So what God is saying in this response is he's saying, remember now descendants of Israel, Israel formerly known as Jacob, remember now your twin brother Esau. Remember how he was just as you were, born of Father Isaac. Remember how he was just as you were, just as sinful, just as faithless as you were. Remember Esau, how he sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. And remember how you schemed your own father out of his blessing. Remember your brother Esau who was just as deserving of my curse as you were, and yet Esau is actually under my curse, and yet you have been loved. You have been chosen by me based solely on my sovereign grace to be loved. And so, brothers and sisters, I think about Israel's complaint here to God, and I think how it's no different when those of us who have been saved by God when we grumble or when we complain or when we have that blasphemous thought in our minds, God, how have you loved me? And God's reply to us in those times could likewise be something like, is not your brother, is not your sister, is not your father, mother, cousin still unsaved and in this world being led around by the prince of the power of the air, headed for an eternal damnation and wrath under my judgments, God is saying, remember my election of you and let that be enough. Remember those who are just like you, who I have not saved. Remember them and then come back and dare ask me the question, how have you loved me? God is saying, in other words, no matter what your situation is in, the, is in this life, no matter How many problems and complaints you might have? It is still sufficient. Better yet, it is the greatest manifestation of God's love to be of his elect, to be chosen to be his children. And so God's first of many rebukes is that he calls Israel to account for their forgetfulness, their forgetfulness of their election, their forgetfulness of God's love for them. And in so doing, they're not thankful In their hearts, and in so they've dishonored their God. And so, having begun with this rebuke, which is really seems to be to the people of Israel in general, God now turns to the priests of Israel in particular, and he continues his rebuke. Let's pick up in verse 6. Where here it says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests, who despise my name? And now here's the second now of many rhetorical questions that that are put into the mouth of of the people. They say, how have we despised your name? In God's answer, verse 7, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar, But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is that not evil? And so as I said, the Lord has turned his his attention directly to the priests of Israel He's directly rebuking them now, these men who are supposed to be the leaders of the people of God. They're supposed to be the leaders in teaching and the leaders in worship, and yet the leaders find themselves just as compromised as the people. And so what exactly is their compromise? Well, here in verse 7, God points out that they're, that they're presenting defiled food upon his altar. And in Leviticus 22 and other places as well, God has spelled out very clearly for the Levitical priests, exactly what kind of animals would be acceptable and which kind of animals are not acceptable. And These priests were allowing the people to offer up to God sacrifices such as verse 8 here described, the blind, the lame, the sick. All such animals were, were clearly against God's regulative principle for worthy sacrifices. And I just think God forbid that we would ever allow our worship to ever become as defiled as Israel's, because God will at some point say, "Enough is enough." Because he said this to Israel in verse 10. Look at verse 10 with me, He says, "Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar." I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. Now we know that, and we know this, that no people of God, no church has ever offered perfect worship to the Lord. But there is most assuredly a point where a church has, has moved so far away from worshiping God in spirit and truth that God would just rather have that church shut its doors. And we can all probably think of of many so-called churches that God would, you would think most certainly wish to just have their doors shut. And you might wonder, why doesn't God just have those doors shut? I think maybe the answer is that God is just as likely to judge those churches and their false worship by just giving them over to it. He just allows them to carry on in their nonsense until they plummet off the cliff into eternity. But here in God's holy temple, he can't find one faithful man who would stand up and defend his namesake, defend his honor to shut the gates to the temple to stop these blasphemous sacrifices from taking place. God has always had a desire for the purity of his people's worship God has always taken pleasure in those leaders who were bold enough to protect God's worship. As I read read through this section, I just thought about um, in Numbers 25. If you're familiar with Numbers 25, where it's the scene where an Israelite brings with him a Midianite woman, a pagan woman, a foreign woman. He brings a foreign pagan woman with him into the congregation of Israel, into the the, the very worship of God's people, and when Phinehas, the grandson of Aaron the priest, sees this Israelite's boldness to bring a pagan woman into the congregation of the people, he spears both that Israelite and that woman through with a spear. And it's very interesting how Numbers 25 goes on to show God's pleasure with Phineas' zeal, pleasure with Phineas' jealousy for God's holiness and God's place of worship. God actually goes on to pronounce a very special blessing upon Phineas for his willingness to defend the purity of God's people. And not that we should um, be looking to pierce anybody through with a spear like Phineas, but there is certainly a principle that carries over from Old Covenant to New Covenant. Certainly false worship is not befitting of the Lord, not the God of the Bible. Because look what the God of the Bible has to say about himself beginning in verse 11. He says, For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. In every place, incense is going to be offered up to my name, and a grain offering that is pure for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Here Malachi is giving us a glimpse into the expansion of God's worship, the expansion that would take place outside of simply geographical Israel, a time when everyone in the world would come to worship God and worship him as he desires and worship him in a way that's worthy of his greatness. Um, All of this, at least hinting, of course, at Gentile inclusion. But as we see here, it's because of the greatness, it's because of the majesty of God that any kind of pseudo-worship, any kind of false, impure worship deserves rebuke and it deserves even curses. And this is what the Lord promises, curses, in verse 14. The Lord says, but cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but instead sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. Now, I read this verse to introduce um, the book of Malachi to us Uh, And I read it because this truth is so foundational to everything that's going on with the Israelites' worship. Why does this false worship in Israel bring about cursing? Why is it so wrong to serve the Lord with half-hearted service and half-hearted worship? Well, God just gave us the answer in the second part of verse 14. He says, for I am a great king says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. God is worthy of the highest praise. He's worthy of the highest worship and obedience because he is a great king. And when the God of the universe, the God whose name is feared among the nations, is not worshiped as he deserves, there is a very right and just punishment for that sin The curses of God for disobedience should not have come as a surprise to the people of Israel. God had graciously spelled out for them in great detail in Deuteronomy chapter 28, um, not only the blessings for covenant keeping, but all of the curses that were entailed with the Mosaic covenant. So if you would, please turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28. uh, Because if you haven't read through Deuteronomy chapter 28 in a while, um, if you haven't read through these curses that are, lifting he- that are listed here, you really should take the time to reacquaint yourself with the seriousness of God's displeasure, with the seriousness of God's wrath as a result of covenant breaking. Um, it is surely a reality that is to be heeded. God's curses for covenant breaking in Deuteronomy chapter 28, uh, maybe I'll just point out a, a few of them, And then we're going to read a portion of Deuteronomy chapter 28. But um, notice these curses, the seriousness of the curses. Uh, Notice in verse 21, uh, the, the, the curses include such terrifying judgments such as pestilences. Verse 28, being smit with madness. Verse 30, having your wife violated before your eyes. Verse 41, having your children taken into captivity, taken away from you and put into slavery by another nation. And there's many other curses listed here, but let me read just beginning in verse 45. Deuteronomy 28, 45 says, so all these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until you're destroyed because you have not obeyed the Lord your God by keeping his commandments and his statutes which he commanded you, they shall become a sign and a wonder on you and your descendants forever, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and with a glad heart for the abundance of all things. Now, I just thought as I looked at Deuteronomy chapter 28 if the law of God had any power to change the heart, I think Deuteronomy chapter 28 would do it. If the threats of God's law, if the threats for disobedience were, were, had any power whatsoever to stir us up to obedience, this chapter would do it. But we know God's law has not that power. It wasn't given even that purpose, as we will surely see. But turn back to Malachi now. Turn back to Malachi because... As horrific as the curses from Deuteronomy chapter 28 are, consider now the curse of Malachi chapter 2 verse 3. The Lord says here, behold, speaking to the priests again, look at this curse, behold, I am going to rebuke your offspring and I will spread refuse on your faces. King James says, I will spread dung on your faces, the dung of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. Now this is a very disgusting rebuke that's directed to the priests of Israel. This refuse, this dung referenced here is the the internal waste, the, the dung that was still inside the animals that were brought to the temple to be sacrificed in exodus chapter 29 leviticus chapter 4 leviticus chapter 16 all instruct the priests of israel that this refuse inside these animals is to be taken outside of the of the camp and is to be burned that's what was supposed to happen with the refuse from their festivals but for the lord to take this refuse And to spread it on the faces of the priests would serve as the ultimate shame. If you you think about it, it is disgusting, but just think about this scene. The priests' garments would be ruined. The priests would, would all together become ceremonially unclean. They would all be found disgraced, unqualified to serve and worship before the Lord. And so if you take one thing away from, from verse 3, from this curse, from this rebuke, just know that the Lord will not be mocked. The Lord will not be mocked. Now obviously when you, when you see curses like this, when you see the Lord going to, to this extent in his rebukes, obviously the priests of Malachi's day were failing miserably, in keeping the stipulations, and keeping the, the responsibilities of the covenant that God had made with the Levites back in, in Numbers 3, that they were to perpetually serve the Lord in the temple. And now it's almost, with that all that being said, it's almost as, the, as if the Lord's taking another angle with the people in order to stir them up to repentance. Because God now turns to remind them of the original faithfulness of the Levites who first carried out their priestly duties in a way that honored the Lord. Let's pick up in verse 4. Here it says, Then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence. So he revered me, and he stood in awe of my name, True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. And so God sets Levi, um, Levi the patriarch, the father of the Levites, he sets Levi before these priests as a godly example of how a priest was to serve him. And I just wanted to quickly point out, just notice the attributes given uh, not to an unfaithful priest. Now we have the attributes of a faithful priest, a faithful leader of God's people here in verses six through nine. Notice what God pointed out there in verse six. He said that true instruction was in his mouth. True instruction was in his mouth. Biblical instruction was in his mouth. Uh, Instruction according to the law. God's word, God's word, which is truth, was in his mouth. God goes on to point on that unrighteousness was not found on his lips. There was no ungodly language found in his mouth, no ungodly words. No, Levi was speaking truth, of course, in love. Verse 6 goes on to say that he walked with me in peace and uprightness, Uh, This man of God lived a godly lifestyle. He was a godly leader, a godly example before the people. And lastly, God says that he turned many back from iniquity. Levi had the willingness to admonish, the willingness to rebuke, the willingness to correct God's people and, and turn them back from iniquity and cover over a multitude of sins. The spiritual leaders of God's people should always be marked by these characteristics. And we know that that's no light calling, um, as being a leader of God's people comes with it great responsibility. We know what James says about being a teacher, being a leader amongst God's people, where James said in James 3.1, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. And so we see this, this this same truth, both Old Covenant, New Covenant. Because if you notice here, all these rebukes are piling on top of each other. The majority of them are directed specifically to God's leaders, specifically to the priests here. They are being held more responsible. They are being called into account um, even more than just the general uh, public, just more than the general people in Israel And so back to our text um, in Malachi now, because the rebukes continue, the rebukes continue, and with as many rebukes as we're going to see here in the book of Malachi, uh, before it ever even gets to a promise of a Redeemer coming to set things straight, um, I think we can just see now why, where the Puritans were known for preaching 90% law, 10% grace. I think I can see where they're getting that from, and, and not that that, of course, is a a standard or, or a, a formula or a ratio that we have to follow every time we go and preach the gospel. But um, here we see that God himself is certainly allowing his law to have its effect. Um, God is not afraid to let man know how hopelessly bankrupt he is. God is not a- afraid to make that clear and to take a lot of time and to take a lot of text to prove it. And so let's look at the next sin to be exposed by the Lord. And this is the sin of unlawful marriage. Unlawful marriage, verse 11. It says, Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign God. He's married the daughter of a foreign God. So, Before we get into the details of that sin, the sin being committed here and addressed, I first just wanted to address the description given of this sin, just the adjective that describes it, because here this unlawful marriage is said to be an abomination. It's an abomination. The word translated abomination in verse 11 is toevah. And when God refers to a sin as being toevah, it is no minor... uh, Infraction. But to be Toeva is an egregious moral violation of God's law. Other sins given this description of Toeva and God's law would include such sins as homosexuality, Leviticus chapter 18, cross dressing is Toeva, Deuteronomy chapter 22, murder is Toeva in Ezekiel 18, and lying is Toeva in Proverbs chapter 12. And so to marry the daughter of a foreign god, it simply means that the Israelites were marrying the daughters of foreigners who worshiped and served foreign gods and idols. And this was certainly a transgression of God's covenant, covenant standards. Um, let's turn to one more of those standards. Turn now to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. I want to read a portion of this as well. Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Sounds like you're all there. Beginning in verse 1, it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, and clears away the many nations before you. But when he clears away all the ites, verse 2, and when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Now this is very important. Verse 3, Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. See how clear that law was? And so to violate this clearly stated law would ensure the curse of God. God says it's an abomination the reason I wanted you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7 is because notice um, very clearly there in verse 4, notice the very specific reason for the prohibition of marrying foreign women in in Deuteronomy 7.4. God knows that marrying these foreign daughters, uh, by doing that, the Israelites would be drawn away to serve their gods. You see, that's important because God did not prohibit um, the marriage between the different nations, between the different races for any superficial reasons. God did not prevent intermarriage between the races for anything superficial like skin color or anything like that. God is not a racist. God was keeping the people of God from idolatry. And so to knowingly and intentionally marry one of these daughters Uh, Is the ultimate contradiction for a true worshiper of God. And that's why Paul's able to use this as an example in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. If you remember there, his reasoning, he's trying to explain what real fellowship, what commonality is there between a worshiper of the true God and a worshiper of Baal. That's why he says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. There's no commonality there. And so I think that command would most would most certainly apply, and that warning would most certainly apply to the most intimate of relationships, the most intimate of covenants, and that's marriage. It's as if the people of Israel had forgotten what happened to great King Solomon, the wisest of all men. Did they not, did they not consider the fact that if the wisest of all men could be drawn away into the deception of idol worship as a result of intermarrying, that they would not fare any better than, than he did. Uh, it was King Solomon, great King Solomon, in the span of just eight chapters, from, from 1 Kings chapter 3 to 1 Kings chapter 11, where King Solomon went from being God's anointed king over his people, full of wisdom, full of riches, In but eight chapters, he finds himself being opposed by God because he had erected high places of worship in Israel for his pagan wives to worship their gods. And so as I think about uh, Solomon, I think how grateful we should be that one greater than Solomon has come because Solomon was not great enough. Now, it seems unbelievable that despite the clear breach of God's law that the people were committing, that they would still wonder why God was not blessing them. Why is God not accepting their offerings? But this is actually where, in fact, we find the people of Israel in verse 13. Verse 13, God speaking first. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears with weeping and with groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. The Lord is not blessing them and they're crying. They can't understand it. And I just thought that this whole situation really speaks to the to the reality of self-deception in our lives when we're in sin. It's so easy to see, to look at the brethren, to look at other people, to to see their sin, to see their uh, places where they're falling short and disobeying God, and you see so clearly why God's not blessing them and why they're stuck in some of the problems they're in. But when it comes to our own sin, we just can't see, we just can't understand why the Lord is not blessing our walks, why the Lord's not answering our prayers, why we're in that funk. We just can't see it in ourselves. The problem is is that without actual repentance, the tears of these Israelites would profit them nothing. Proverbs 28.9 says, He who turns his ears away from the law of the Lord, even his prayers are an abomination. Without heeding the word of God, your, your tears are not going to profit you. The favor of God had left the Israelites because they had broken the covenant that God made with them at Sinai. They broke the Mosaic covenant, and they broke the Mosaic covenant by breaking the covenant that they had made with their wives. This is the point God makes as he answers their question in verse 14. Why is God not receiving our worship, they ask. In verse 14, yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and And the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Your wife by covenant. Uh, The language used in Genesis chapter 2 of the union between Adam and Eve, um, the the language used to describe that union um, insinuates a covenant taking place there between Adam and Eve. Here in Malachi chapter 2, verse 14, as well as in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 17, marriage is explicitly uh, denoted to be a covenant. To be a covenant. And being that our God is a covenantal God, this is how God has decided, this is how He's decreed to interact with His people through the relationship of covenant. And so God obviously takes those relationships extremely seriously. And God hates it when that covenant, when that relationship is breached. And I use the the strong language of hate very intentionally because this is just the language that God uses of the breach of the marriage covenant in verse 16. Notice with me in verse 16. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. I hate divorce. Now, if you have an ESV Bible, um, you're not going to see that, that phrase exactly. The ESV translators have kind of gone out, um, gone, kind of gone solo on their interpretation of, of the grammar of this verse. So if you have an ESV, which I know a lot of you do, that's even why I mention it, um, the ESV is taking the, the hate, or as they translate it there, the lack of love, Um, not to be God's hatred of divorce, but they are interpreting that to be the the husband's hatred towards the wife who he's divorcing. So they're interpreting that, that phrase to be not God's hating divorce, but they're saying that the man who's divorcing his wife is in fact hating his wife by divorcing her. And I just think that either interpretation is a true statement. Just as the Bible tells us that a parent who does not discipline their child hates their child. So, the husband who divorces his wife to marry another hates his wife. He can say that he loves her. He can try to convince himself that he loves her. He can try to convince her that he loves her. He can try to convince her that it's for her good. She'll find somebody better than him. But his actions is proving otherwise. And God most certainly hates that transgression when it's done in a selfish and sinful way. I think it's interesting that even though God hates divorce, um, as we know, he has allowed for legal divorces in cases involving adultery and abandonment. We've seen those exception clauses in Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7. But even though God permits these divorces, it is certainly not the ideal Jesus says that these legal divorces, these things that are permitted are due to the hardness of our hearts. That's why they're even there. Uh, Not because it's God's intention in one sense, but it's because of our sinfulness. Because of the hardness of our hearts. But Jesus is very quick to say this is not how it was from the beginning. That's not how God intended it. Divorce distorts the picture of marriage Marriage is to be the beautiful depiction of God's faithful love for his bride. So God hates it when we disfigure and deform that picture of the institution that was designed by God to remind the world of his faithfulness. And so divorce is to be avoided, if at all possible. Divorce is to certainly be a last resort. And so again, with Again, uh, it just blows me away as I'm reading through the book of Malachi because with as many offenses as the Lord has already brought against this people, against the Israelites, it amazes me that at this point the people would have the audacity to cry out for what they do. Because notice what they're asking for. Notice what their desire is at the very end of verse 17. At this point, they're saying somehow... Where is the God of justice? Now that's strange, because if I had just been called to the mat by God for questioning his love, for presenting defiled sacrifices upon his altar, for leading the people in false worship, for divorcing my wife to marry an idol-worshiping woman, I don't think that I would be looking for the God of justice. But whether they knew the repercussions of what they were asking for or not, the Lord Himself is going to oblige. Because look what He says in chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and He will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now hopefully you recognize the verbiage used here in the first part of uh, of verse 1 of this messenger who will clear the way before me. I hope you recognize it because all three of the synoptic gospels attribute this prophecy of this, this preparatory ministry for the coming of the Lord to John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the one who's going to fulfill this. He's going to prepare the way for the Messiah, the messenger of the covenant, to suddenly come to his temple. Um, but we're going we're to deal with John the Baptist's part in this prophecy more fully um, next week because this prophecy is expounded upon. It's reiterated in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. So as far as John the Baptist is, gonna co- is concerned, we're going we're gonna to look at that, Lord willing, next week. But what's so interesting to me about the placement of this prophecy of the coming Lord is that we normally think of the coming of Christ in his incarnation. We normally think of this as the apex of grace, the very zenith of good news. And see, the presence of the Lord is only good news for some. For others, the presence of the Holy Son of God brings about judgment. And this is the reality that Malachi is now bringing to the people's attention. Look in verse 2. Because God says now, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? See, if you're familiar with the four gospels and all of their accounts of Christ's coming, you'll recall just how ill-prepared the Jews were for the Lord's coming most of them fell under Christ's condemnations. Most of them fell under his rebukes. For them, the coming of the Lord to his temple was not good news at all. They could not endure his coming, nor were they able to stand at his appearing. But Malachi in this text also speaks to the people about the coming of the Lord and about the gracious aspects of. And the good, gracious work of sanctification that would occur as a result of the Lord's appearing. So let's pick up at the end of verse 2 and read verse 3. Because here it says For he is like a refiner's fire and like fooler's soap. He will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and will refine them like gold and like silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. So the adjectives given of the Lord's work in the coming of Christ are that of a fire, a fire that purifies metal, an adjective of soap, soap that cleanses clothes. And so his presence is going to do two things. It's going to surely burn away the chaff. And it's going to clean those who would then function rightly as the sons of Levi, those who who, who would function rightly as his priests. Malachi's saying is that when Christ comes, he's going to cleanse, he's going to sanctify those whom he's setting apart to act as his priests. And because this cleansing, this sanctification of the priesthood happens at Christ's coming, this cleansing of the priesthood is happening under the new covenant. And so with the inauguration of that new covenant, we, brothers and sisters, who the coming of Christ has purified, we are now to be those priests. We're to function just as 1 Peter chapter 2, 5 says. Let me just read it to you. As Peter says this to the church. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. That Old Covenant Temple, the Old Covenant Temple merely pointed towards the temple of God that we're to be. And no, we're not a temple of limestone, but we're a temple, Peter says, of living stones. We're not a temple of unspiritual hypocrisy like the temple worship of Malachi's day. We're to be a spiritual house, Peter says, a holy priesthood. We're not a priesthood that offers up dead animals, but spiritual sacrifices. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, the Apostle Paul, along the same train of thought, says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And so as we close here for today with the book of Malachi, I just want you to notice the all-important redemptive theme being proven here, being taught by the first two chapters of Malachi. So what God is first proving through Malachi and all of these endless rebukes is that man is a sinner man is unworthy man is unable in and of himself to offer and to provide proper worship to God to offer proper sacrifice in obedience to God but the good news the good news is that with the coming of Christ worship is made possible through his refining, sanctifying work. And so I just thought, in one sense, brothers and sisters, we are in the same situation that these Israelites found themselves in because we too have a promise of a coming Christ. And it's at that second coming of Christ uh, that there will be very similar effects Because for those who are outside of Christ at his coming, those who continue in their disobedience, his coming will be very bad news for them. But for those who by God's grace have repented of their sins, those who by God's grace have been given a faith that actually looks forward with hope to the coming of that Christ, to the coming of our Savior, his coming will indeed be very good news. A coming that will bring the ultimate refining, the ultimate sanctification, the ultimate purification. The coming of Christ, brothers and sisters, will bring about our glorification. So I just look forward to just the way the Bible ends, where in Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, where Christ promised, I am coming quickly. And so I say, just as John did, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Well, Lord Jesus, it's a a privilege, Lord, to be referred to as your priests, to have every one of us who are in Christ to have full access, to boldly come before your throne, to intercede for ourselves and for others, to intercede even for the lost, Lord, what a privilege to be known as your people, Lord. Help us. Lord, help us. We thank you for everything that we've learned about the work of the Holy Spirit in Sunday School, Lord, how great this work of the Spirit is in this new covenant. Lord, we have no excuse. Lord, we are fully equipped. Christ has come, your word has been given, and we are filled with the Spirit There is no excuse for us, Lord. We're fully equipped to offer up to you pure worship. Lord, help us. Help us to glorify you every single day. We thank you, Lord, that we got to worship you through the Lord's Supper today. We thank you for that means of grace. We thank you for that reminder, that taste, sweet taste of victory in Lord Jesus. Please uh, receive our worship now as, as we sing to you.